Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Dairy Farmer's Digest. I'm super excited to have Michelle Dernan on from uh, Prosperity Ag. Uh, you've also got a lot of different irons in the fire. Uh, I understand, Michelle, you also own uh, Dernan Farm and Ranchware, uh, kind of a women's apparel for the farming community and uh, New Prosperity Ag Out Loud, a podcast uh, as well. So I'm excited to have you on this morning. Thank you, Keith. I'm excited as well. And yes, definitely an interesting study for sure. Uh, never a dull moment around here, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, that, that keeps things exciting. So uh, you also have the dubious honor of being my 50th podcast. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations on 50 episodes. <laughs> I know. it's uh, It's been a little bit of a journey. Like I, I never thought when we started this, I didn't know where it was going to go or what was going to happen. But uh, it's been... Uh, it's been exciting times, I guess, doing these podcasts for the for the dairy community here um, locally in Ontario and kind of across uh, globally. I guess we have listeners from all over the place. So it's uh, it's been definitely an interesting experience and quite the education with some of the guests I have on. So definitely. Well, and I can appreciate the consistency there because, you know, 50 episodes, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of prep getting your questions together for the interviews and getting the editing done. So kudos to you. That's excellent. Oh, thank you. So I guess the kind of the nuts and bolts of why uh, we asked you to come on here this morning is about corn and corn agronomy and what's going on uh, in that world right now. It's uh, I think it's the 19th of July. Yeah. 19th of July today. So I know down our way, we've got some corn that's in flag leaf and starting to push tassel and things like that. So it's it's kind of exciting times from a, from a cow chow standpoint, just because, you know, you can see the future crop uh, growing in the field for the most part across uh, Western Ontario and Southwestern Ontario, where I travel, uh, corn looks pretty darn good. There's some, there's a little bit of drown out stuff where they've had some real heavy rain where it's a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, drought stressed you can see and then uh i i kind of wonder about uh some of the uneven emergence we had this spring too if there's a little bit of an effect of that but in general the crop looks pretty For sure. good it does and it's it's amazing how things have really turned around in the last few weeks we started out so dry right earlier on in the season um i guess for those who don't know like i i'm up in huron county I cover up into Bruce County a little bit and over to Perth as well. So that's kind of what I see in my travels. But certainly we had a late start to the spring. Like you said, a little bit of uneven emergence for sure. And then I know for us, we were pretty dry up here. And then as soon as we've started getting rains in the last few weeks, man, that corn crop has has really jumped. And I think that we've certainly made up for lost time and have got a lot of yield potential that we're looking at right now if we can keep these rains up throughout the rest of the season. Are we like on track in most places for like growing degree days or crop heat units? Like I think we're actually a, a little bit behind, believe it or not, compared to most years. It doesn't necessarily feel that way because we've now had the moisture um, that we're certainly not lacking in crop height. 
but I believe we are a little bit behind this year. So we've got, got some work to do to make up for that. Yeah. Is that just like, I know uh, right across kind of the Northern part of the U S and upper Midwest and this part of Canada, we've had a lot of smoke uh, coming down from the North and, you know, Monday was a pretty bad day again. And I thought, Oh, all this rain, maybe the wildfires have subsided, but they're still raging up there. So. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I know in years past, I think in some regions where they've had bad wildfire smoke, um, that has had some effect on the crop. I think for the most part, it occurred early enough in the season for us that I don't think it'll have hindered things too much. Uh, you know, if you look at our wheat crop, like it's matured pretty well on pace this year, I would say. From what I've heard, the yields coming off are pretty good. So, so far, I'm pretty optimistic um, that I don't think that that has really shaped things too, too much for us. But no, we're, we're set up for, you know, a good season here. I think we've got a lot of corn yield to protect. You get into this time of year and uh, fungicides are certainly always part of the discussion. Um, I'm a big advocate for fungicides on corn in the region that I cover. You know, we're in a, a pretty high yielding uh, region of the province for sure. Most places that I cover can grow upwards of 220 bushel corn. Um, high yielding silage crops as well, for sure. So we've got a lot of yield to protect here. And uh, certainly as we start to hear more about tar spot, I'm sure, you know, you being down in Rodney, that's something that probably people are talking about down in your region as well. But uh, definitely something to be on the lookout for. And I think we need to manage accordingly. Yeah, actually, uh, a good friend of mine has uh, Albert Tenuta, who's the, what it, he's the like, disease corn specialist for yeah he's Omafra. Um, yep yep yes that's correct yeah he's the Ontario disease specialist yeah so he actually lives about five minutes away from me and then uh kind of the original cases of tar spot in Ontario have been on a good friend of mine's farm and so they have uh they do a bunch of test plots on that field now and um just kind of scrolling through Twitter I seen last week that they uh they already had some lesions starting there so it's a it's a little bit concerning but um is there I guess with the fungicide like if you're looking at a decision tree, like how does a producer go through and look at what the proper fungicide is? And I guess my next question would be, are we going to be thinking about tank mixing things like insecticide with it for some Western meat cutworm pressure? Because I know that in the past, that's been a problem. And it seems like whenever we get toxins, we either get it, it seems whether it be from insect damage and Western meat cutworm, I know it was really bad a couple of years ago. And uh, other times it's just, weather related i guess during pollination and right now we're kind of set up to i don't know we've got some real heavy dewy cooler nights and a lot of humidity so i'm kind of thinking about that in the back of my mind too for sure so you're absolutely right like we're we definitely have the weather conditions right now um that diseases like tar spot like northern corn leaf like do very well in so kind of the humid warmer weather that we're having right now like you said dews just maintaining that leaf wetness. Those are the conditions that tar spot especially really likes. Um, and kudos to Albert Noodle, like you mentioned, because he has done a, a lot of fantastic research in the province um, down in your region and helping to educate agronomists and farmers in the province. 
just on how to manage this disease, you know, how severe it can be. Um, I was fortunate uh, two falls ago, I believe it was the beginning of October, I got down to see his trials that he had set up and that disease can be just absolutely devastating, right? It's, you know, it's not like some things we look at and we might take a five bushel hit, you know, when you see a disease that could potentially take 50 bushels off the top, right? Like that is, is really something to pay attention to. Um, and it certainly is driven by environmental conditions. So last year, you know, a lot of the summer was quite dry. We didn't have those prolonged periods of leaf wetness. And so it wasn't something that we necessarily saw last year. Certainly this year we could be setting up for it. Now, the good news is uh, there's a lot of fantastic fungicides on the market that will do quite a good job on tar spot. You know, probably the, the top three that I would look to would be Veltima, uh, Delero Complete, and then Miravis Neo is still a really nice option, but there's, there are tons of great products out there pretty well. You know, every chemical company has got something that is going to work to some degree for sure. Is in terms of timing wise, you know, the typical time that we would be going in for a fungicide application is going to be either that tassel or that silking time frame. The tendency in my region has been to target silking um, because a lot of growers are not only going after the leaf diseases like tar spot, but they want to have some protection against gibberella, which like you mm -hmm. mentioned, uh, can lead to the toxins in the fall, right? So there's, there's really two components. There is that leaf disease protection that we get um, from products like Delero Complete Veltima. And then there's also that gibberella protection that we get from products like Caramba um, or Proline. And so it's, uh, you know, it's important to know what you're going after, but certainly these types of conditions do lend themselves to both diseases. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of fungicide that gets applied in this region that I cover because typically we're dealing with those higher yielding scenarios. I, I find that, um, you know, quite often the worst case scenario with the fungicide is going to be break even in terms of the chemical and application cost in this region anyways. I know you get to some of the, the heavier clay belts, maybe um, some sandier ground where things get burnt up and say the yield potential isn't as high there. I know that can be a bit of a tougher decision for those producers on do we apply or do we not? So I think in those areas where the payback on the fungicide may not be as high, um, I think it's going to be a year where you certainly want to be out in the crop every 10 to 14 days, certainly monitoring for those spot lesions on the leaves. Um, but I, I am pretty confident, you know, for most of the good corn growing regions, uh, the last couple of years, any of the side by sides that I've seen done, you know, been somewhere in that seven to 14 bushel range in favor of the fungicide. So I'm, I'm pretty confident, you know, that we can go out and apply that with confidence, um, give ourselves some tires broad protection and to help keep that, that plant certainly healthier towards harvest. Oh, I think even on the lower end of that yield spectrum that you just kind of laid out there like you'll at least cover your app cost and chemical cost exactly and that's and... you know though those haven't <laughs> been in high tar spot years right like that's mm -hmm. you know that's just a, a typical year that we've seen the last couple so for sure i think that those numbers can be even higher if we do get into 
higher incidence of tar spot, right? Um, the other thing that you asked about there was Western bean cutworm. Um, that's certainly the biggest insect pest that we deal with. And Western bean cutworm, you know, it's not a huge problem in terms of yield loss. Typically you see those larvae feeding on the tips of the cob, but it's, you know, it's typically where we've got tip back anyways, you know, they're, they're not really losing. Um, we're not really losing a lot of bushels to that, but what they do, like you mentioned is they create an entry point for some of those ear molds uh, like the gibberella, right? And so certainly with, with Western bean cutworm, there are hot spots within the province, typically on lighter soils where they seem to have more of a reoccurring problem year after year. And so folks in those regions, you know, they've either moved to hybrids that have got some tolerance to Western bean cutworm or um, just know that in that fungicide application, they're going to be adding in an insecticide. For the rest of the province where, you know, we are, you know, don't have as consistent of problems, certainly it's important to be monitoring the flight pattern. So uh, we just up here, just starting to get our traps set up to start to monitor that, that flight path. And we'll be doing so throughout the rest of the, the season. A lot of folks in different parts of the region do that. So you can kind of keep an eye on those trap numbers um, and also scout for those egg masses. It is difficult and not, not terribly fun to be going out into standing corn scouting for those egg masses. So I think monitoring those trap counts is a really good way to uh, to determine whether or not that insecticide is needed. And, and you know, it, it's nice if it, if it does correlate with that fungicide timing. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, the moth flight pattern is a little bit delayed. So definitely high yielding, I'm sorry, high risk areas, you know, where the cutworm has been historically a problem, you know, potential need for, for insecticide there. And I think other regions just to monitor those traps for sure. Where I kind of live, I'm on the North Shore Lake Erie and we're on pretty light soil. So we've had cutworm for 10, 12, 15 yeah. years. We, we just have to really be cognizant of flight path and, and corn maturity stage. If that flight path lines up with the proper corn stage, like we've had some real issues with cutworm where you're walking through a field and every end is chewed up and actually you'll see worms down. If you open that ear up, like they're halfway up the cob, like they're actually doing some wow. damage. But then the other thing too, is that when we had that really high toxin year, I think 2018 or 2019, I can't remember. Most of it was caused by the jib. And the jib started mm -hmm. because the cutworm damage. And so you're going and opening up these ears and it's just, the end looks real gnarly from where the cutworm, these fat little worms are in the end. Then you start to see that white mold and some pink and some things like that. And it seemed like with the silage corn earlier on, we didn't have as much of a toxin issue, but it affected more of the green side later on in the season. So for sure. Well, you just, you know, you've got that extra few weeks for those ear molds to grow in the fall, especially, you know, we get into October, we've got shorter days, wetter conditions, yeah. just more of an environment for those ear molds to do well, right? Yeah. And then with the tar spot, like, I know we've seen it on silage crops where I think it has a lot to do with timing too, from my understanding, like when, when the lesions start to affect the crop or affect the corn. Because two years ago, I was at uh, producers down in Essex County, and they ended up doing corn silage in mid-August because it was just dying. Like, it's either wow. you go get it now, or there's not going to be anything left in a couple weeks to to do anything with. And then actually, when you take the silage sample after you fermented it, you could see, like, it was almost like somebody took a Sharpie and was, like, just poking dots on the corn. 
or on the leaves and the and the, and the stock because it was just completely uh covered by it like it was it was something else i probably took a picture of it i'd have to look back through my 8000 pictures on my phone but it's hard to believe just how devastating it can be until you really see it in person, right? Yeah. And and that's what I found when I was uh, touring Albert's trials. So he had trials set up basically comparing the different fungicides that we have available to us in the province with one application made around silking. And then he actually had trials with a second application made, I, I think it was three or four weeks later. And um, under those severe tartar spot conditions. Um, you know, I, I wasn't happy with how just that single fungicide application looked. So certainly if we get into high presence of disease with the right environmental conditions, we could be looking at a second fungicide application and not to sound all doom and gloom. I mean, it's, it's good to know that the products work, right? But that is the reality of the scenario. So we do have options, but it's just going to take more management for sure once we get into those kind of conditions yeah and i mean when we're talking about such a valuable crop like corn like i would say most producers are feeding 50 plus percent dry matter like other forage base of corn so it's a huge portion to what the entire ration looks like i think it's just we got to have some insurance on that stuff i used to think like maybe five six seven years ago fungicide and it's hit or miss, you know, really played on the year. But I think now it's it's a no-brainer. Like, we're harvesting an entire plant to make feed, to make, like, high-quality forage. I think it's a no-brainer now. Everybody asks me, like, oh, should I do fungicide? I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even question it now. Like, talk to your agronomist. Like, talk to people like yourself and find out what the right product or mode of action is and what your kind of disease pressure is. But at the end of the day, like, just do it. Well, and we've got the equipment for it now too, right? Like mm -hmm. the, you know, the high clearance sprayers, um, they're, uh, they're a lot more prevalent than what they were in the past. Right. So I think we're at a point where we have the capacity in Ontario to be able to spray the number of acres that are out there. Right. So that's been a bit of a hang up, I think in, in years past as well. So I think certainly some of those, some of the tougher soils, right. I get up into Bruce County a bit. I, I used to work in Haldeman. If you're only looking at hundred or 140 or 150 bushel corn crop, it's maybe a tougher decision, but I think, like you said, you know, if you've got a good looking crop out there, then it's certainly worthwhile protecting it. With corn, like, is there any other kind of considerations, I guess, for disease control at this time? Or is it just fungicide and whether or not you throw insecticide in that tank at the same time? That's really the big thing, for sure. You know, the only other thing that I really would put in kind of at that tassel or silking time would be a micronutrient foliar. Like, I run into a lot of manganese deficiency on some of the sand and muck around here. So that's uh, that's really the only other thing that I'm, I'm going to think about putting in the tank at that time. Uh, so I want to shift gears a little bit. We've got a lot of wheat coming off, um, straw coming off, that kind of thing. What are some, you know forage considerations for after that i know this year we might not have as many people putting in you know a second crop um just with the amount of hay that we've had so far this year like most areas in this neck of the world anyways have uh we've had some pretty tremendous hay yields through first and second cut i know uh i got some clients that are cutting some sudan grass and some things like that right now and it looks like there's a ton of feed there but if a producer's kind of i guess land-based challenged 
and they have some wheat ground available. What's uh, what are we looking at for options for for a second crop? Yeah, for sure. And uh, definitely we've had a, a tremendous year for the forages so far. And it's nice because it looks like uh, we've got some moisture in the ground now. So if we are seeding anything after wheat, we are going to have a bit of moisture to get it going. I'm I'm still a big fan of oats afterwards. They're simple to grow. They always seem to grow as long as we get a bit of moisture and they come off at a nice time, um, you know, in the fall and then you can still get tillage done or whatever you need to do afterwards in the fall. So I do really like oats. I have no problem at all with putting peas in the mix. I just always caution with peas. If you get dry weather, they don't always flourish because they are more of a cool season crop. Um, a couple things to mention with oats, um, it's nice, you know, if if you can let that volunteer wheat grow for a week, say, if you have the time just to get it sprayed off before you go about drilling your oats, because then you're going to have just a nice full stand of oats there without having to contend with that volunteer wheat. Right. Um, the other big thing is just making sure that you get enough nitrogen on there. I think often we look at this as a bonus crop and might just go out and put on, say, 4000 gallons of dairy manure. But that's typically not actually enough nitrogen for that crop. Um, you know, either need something a little bit more potent, like if the guy's got some hog manure or top it up with a little bit of commercial fertilizer so that we're somewhere in that range of, you know, maybe 60 to 75 pounds of actual nitrogen, um, just to really, you know, really make the most out of that crop if we're going to. And then um, I'm, I'm a big fan as well of, of, planning, you know, when, when those oats are six to eight inches high, just making a pass with fungicides so that we protect against rust, because that's always an issue for us. But I think if you do all of those things, um, you can certainly have quite a good oat crop coming off towards the end of September. So definitely that's probably number one in my books. Um, some guys are starting to look more at sorghum just because I think there is potential to maybe get a little bit more biomass out of that. Sorghum's a great crop. It's more of a warmer season crop, so it can do well in the heat of the summer. Uh, the only real watch out with the sorghum is that if we let it go too late into the fall and it gets a frost on it, um, it can make prussic acid. So I would say timeliness with sorghum is important. Um, you're going to have between 45 to 60 days until you're going to harvest that crop. So if it's not going in, you know, early August, then, then we really start to, to push that one. Right. So yeah. I would say oats are a safer bet. Um, you know, if you really needed a lot of feed and wanted to try something, sorghum would be one to look at. And then really the, the only two other things. So there's always some new seedings that go in this time of year and new seedings. I would say that, um, you know, certainly April, May is going to be the most consistent time to get a good stand um, with a new seeding because we're pretty well guaranteed that we're going to get rain. Um, seeding after we can be a little bit more hit and miss, but like I said, if we know we've got moisture in the ground, then we're already kind of set up for success. The two things that I always recommend just to watch out for with uh, new seedings this time of year are 
to double check what you put down as a herbicide in your wheat because some will have some residual that's still hanging around that could affect that alfalfa a bit. And then the other big thing is volunteer wheat. So even, you know, even if you do that burn down, like I mentioned, um, after the wheat comes off, there always seems to be more that comes up in the fall. And so we don't want a lot of volunteer wheat in that new seeding going into the spring because it's going to compete and potentially smother out some of our alfalfa. So you can go in and spray with a grass herbicide in the fall just to, uh, to kill that off. So you've got a nice pure alfalfa stand going into the spring. Um, and then the last thing I guess that I see still kind of commonly would be, you know, leaving, um, leaving that field bare in August, getting some manure on, maybe getting a tillage pass done, getting a burn down done, and then coming in with triticale um, or rye in, uh, in early September, and then leaving that crop until the spring. So I would say oats for sure the most common, but those are, those are the other crops that I, I still do typically see. Do you have... Any experience with like a spring triticale after wheat? Because I know I've heard some producers talking about that a little bit because you can still get it this fall and yeah. you don't really have to worry about it surviving through the winter. I don't, to be honest with you. Um, I would suspect, you know, it, it, it may be similar to your oats, right? So then mm -hmm. it might just come down to a cost thing on, you know, seed costs and whatnot. Well, and then I got kind of wondering about like oats because like you're, you have to do a, a fungicide pass with it or like your yield. Like I, I don't think there's any feed value uh, issues with oats that have rust. It's just a yield thing. Like you spend all the time and money effort to make this crop and then like it just gets decimated. Like you're probably looking at what, like 40 to 50% of yield if it does get rust. Yeah. Depending how bad it is, it can yeah. be significant for sure. Yeah. yeah, I know. And I've seen red tractors turn orange and green ones turn orange too on the exactly. mower after like cut and fall oats. Like it's always, uh, it's always one of those things that uh, spend the money on the fungicide just to try and get it on the other end. Now, what about like stuff like barley? Like I know some people do barley oats or like a, some different kind of blends in there. Like, and, and their idea is to get away from the rust susceptibility of having straight oats. Like, is there any benefit to that? Or is that just a, crazy idea no no so like you're talking about um drilling something say in august and then leaving the yeah like over the winter no Is no no like, like doing okay. like uh like as a forage crop so you leave the so you do like a oat part oat barley pea or oat and barley mix and then harvest it as a forage in the fall right and like people from my understanding say that if you don't have straight oats like if you have another crop in there like you're susceptibility to rust goes down i'm not sure if that's true or not i'm just i'm asking you know what i well and i i'd love to answer this well but honestly most of the stands well 99 percent of the stands that i see are truly oats or just oats and peas so i don't have a lot of experience with those cocktails that time of year what i can tell you is on the spring seedings um like mixed grains say mm -hmm. i still have run into rust in oats you know in a in an oat barley mix if we have the right weather conditions so could it help maybe um you know if if i'm going to go to the trouble to plant that crop and, and treat it like a real crop I'm probably going to still put a fungicide on it for what it costs to put something inexpensive on in the fall. Um, I probably still would, but, uh, but that's one that I, I can't say I have a ton of experience on Keith. 
I think we really have to kind of lean on growers for that one, whether with what their kind of experiences are, because you're a bit more of an anomaly with the uh, forage crop. Cause I know you like to focus on like the livestock forage and feed side of things where <clears throat> I'm not a lot of agronomists, if it's not corn or soybeans, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no. And I, I started yeah. out that way too, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and uh, just over time, well, when I moved to this area as well, right, just heavier livestock yeah. presence, then uh, for sure have have taken more of an interest in it. But um, but that's the thing, right? When you're when you're in a, a localized region working with a certain number of growers, um, and kind of have your practices down, you don't always see you know what folks in different regions are doing, right? And so here, yeah. I find you know we're more apt to to work with just a straight straight out and pea crop afterwards. So. Yeah, it always used to bug me. You'd ask an agronomist a question and then be like, ah, it's just silage corn. Don't worry about it. <laughs> like, no, this is <laughs> this is huge money going into these bunk silos. So, but it, it is. I, but I have to say, like, it's coming around. Agronomists, I think, realize that there's a lot of yield potential. And, and these dairy producers today are, they're pretty, uh, pretty keen on growing high yielding crop. Like, we're essentially growing it for the starch. Um, so, you know, if we want to, if, talking to grain farmers or, or forage producers like we're they're really trying to push that yield envelope to get as much as they can off a acre because well it, it, it's money and then the other thing too is acreage is usually most dairy farms bottleneck like having enough forage for the, the way for winter feeding so that's yeah that's absolutely what i find up here and um i like I'm, I'm super impressed with, uh, you know, a lot of the dairy farmers um, that I've talked to or that I work with, like they're, you know, they're very progressive. Um, yeah, maybe the money's made in the barn, but they are really doing a good job on the cropping side of things. And, uh, and it is interesting bringing in the other element of having the nutritionist involved as well. Because they, uh, you know, they may, may ask questions that we don't necessarily think about in the agronomy world. And so it's nice to be taking off those crops, like getting that feed analysis back and then really starting to tweak, say, our nitrogen programs and stuff. Um, so it's, it's good having that whole feedback loop that we really have when it comes to feed and forage crops, for sure. It kind of goes back to a few years ago as well when... Like I've always been interested a lot in agronomy. Like when I went to when I went to school, I thought I was helping. I was coming out working in retail ag, you know, at a at the time a WD Thompson's or a or a co-op of some sort. And turns out I didn't like it. I still like the agronomy side of things, but I like the cow side of things a bit more. So it's been a really good kind of mesh to kind of throw both of them together and uh try and make push the yield envelope, I guess, because you know, if we make high quality forage throughout the summer it makes making milk for the next year a lot easier and a lot cheaper definitely so. definitely for sure so uh, and it like it is tough too because um doing trials with forage crops where you know it's not as simple as having a yield monitor or a y wagon brought to the field right there's that you know there's just less things that go to trial that get weighed off mm -hmm. and so that's where, like you said earlier, we do sometimes have to rely on some farmer farmer trial plots um, to have guys, you know, bring the TMR mixer out to the field and weigh things off themselves because there's less research that is being done on these crops. And it's hard to find 
it's hard to find stuff when you start looking for it, especially locally. Because I find that the forage crops that were growing and looking for yield data, like you really need to have local numbers. Like you can't look at, say, something in South Dakota, for instance, because their agronomy and growing, like their agronomic traits and their growing seasons just aren't the same. So we have a lot of different, I guess, yield data to look at. And I just find that there isn't a ton of information about their, about local yield on different forage crops, right? It's it, and, and it's more of a niche, I think, is why it's kind of drove that way. Like corn, there's what, a couple million acres of corn and a million and a half acres of wheat and a million and a half acres of soybeans. So it's like a lot of, there's a lot more interest in that where alfalfa is still one of the biggest crops in Ontario, but it doesn't seem like anybody, <laughs> anybody does a lot of work with it, right? So. For sure. And then I guess one other question too would be with if people are summer seeding their hay for next year, does it make sense to put a nurse crop with it or is it better off to kind of direct seed this time of year? I like to direct seed this time of year. Um, And the big reason being is like I mentioned with that volunteer week coming up, right? Then it, uh, you know, gives us an opportunity to go out with a grass herbicide and tidy up any of that volunteer wheat that comes back up, right? So I uh, I prefer to see a direct seed at this time of year. So, and I mean, the other, the other piece of that too is I would say we have probably a little bit less weed pressure this time of year because a lot of annuals, you know, they're going to germinate May, June. Um, and so I would say a little bit less weed pressure to contend with when we're seeding this time of year as well. The last kind of thing I wanted to touch on was fertilizer. Like what should we look at, be looking at for fertilizer packages for alfalfa for next year? Because I know like there's been a lot of work done on sulfur and I'm under the understanding that it's better to put it on in the fall than the spring because it's more available or is that, or is it just the, the type of sulfur that you're using? So certainly, yeah, certainly the type of sulfur that you're using has an effect. So the one that you're probably thinking of would be elemental sulfur. Mm -hmm. So that is a very economical form of sulfur to purchase. It's a slow, gradual release of sulfur. And so it's not one that we see used a ton in our cash cropping operations because it's difficult to predict exactly when that sulfur is going to become available in the growing season. But for alfalfa, you know, we've got a a plant there 12 months out of the year. And so at some point that plant is going to be there when that sulfur becomes available. And so it seems to work quite well for our hay stands. So certainly, you know, fall is a nice time to get that sulfur on. Um, And it just it depends on on how you're managing that crop. So. I do work with some growers that maybe don't have enough manure to um, get an application on every cut or every other cut. And so we'll go out and give those hay stands a bump with something like ammonium sulfate, you know, maybe two out of the four cuts a season. And so they're going to be getting their sulfur needs met through those applications. So it just, it just depends a little bit on your program, but Certainly, I think there's value to having the sulfur on the alfalfa. Um, The other thing that is good to do this time of year um, as we get closer to the fall is to 
take inventory of what you've taken off the field. So this year we're going to have some, you know, phenomenal cuts of hay coming off the field. So I tried to encourage growers to keep track of what they're taking off for dry matter tonnage um, and what they have applied back to the field in terms of manure applications or commercial fertilizer. And it's really just, you know, a mathematical equation. You know, we're taking off roughly 50 pounds of actual potassium per ton of dry matter. So we want to make sure that we're putting that back on. And so, you know, if you can kind of take inventory of that September after you get your last cutoff, and then if you need to go out and make a dry fertilizer application, then great time to get on your elemental sulfur and some extra map and potash if you need to. And typically, not always the last couple of years, but typically fertilizer prices are a bit lower in the fall. So a good time to get that job done for sure. Yeah, I never realized how hungry of a crop alfalfa can be, especially like when Definitely. it comes to sulfur or potassium. And the other thing too, is we're not putting any organic matter back to the soil when we're taking all the material off the top, other than maybe some manure going back on. But honestly, like dairy manure doesn't, it's got some stuff in it, but it's not the, it's not the most, it's not, it's not market hog manure. No, it's not. And, and that's a good point. I mean, you pretty well need, you know, about 12,000 gallons of dairy manure going on in a season to meet the needs of, you know, say a three and a half ton dry matter alfalfa crop. And everybody's manure is different. It, it does vary widely just depending on the style of barn. So certainly good to get that manure tested. But you're right, alfalfa is a very hungry crop. Typically, the lowest soil tests that I see are always after a field has been in hay for three or four years. And so, you know, you just you have to start to build a budget um, to maintain at least a crop removal approach with those crops, because certainly, you know, I, I do find that even though there's a lot of manure going out on dairy farms, quite often we can start to see those soil test levels decline if we're pulling off really good yields and don't have quite enough enough manure to meet the needs yeah and i think like this year i wouldn't be surprised in areas if we're looking at what would typically be like three to four metric tons of dry matter per acre yep. on a, on a hay acre yep. crop like yep for sure. i think i think we're going to be pushing maybe six with this year like it's i had a grower text me this morning and say he's got more often two cuts than he did in four last year so yeah, last we're, year was we're going to be pulling. I know, I know. We're going to, but we are going to be uh, pulling a lot off the fields this year for sure. Yeah. Like, even like, like most of the producers that I've talked to is like first cut was one of the best on record. Second cut was about 80% of 75, 80% of what first cut was. And third cut's got tons of moisture and been pretty sunny. So, as long as I guess the fertilizers, it can grab it, then we should have a pretty good third cut coming off. And then Fourth cut's always a crapshoot because you never know what's going to happen in, in August. Um, and then the last thing, I wanted to talk about your other business. Well, appreciate that. That's <laughs> awesome. So, so where did that get started? Like out uh, of necessity? Like out of out of necessity for sure. So I grew up on a cash crop farm, actually. And uh, so, you know, I grew up 
in my car hearts and whatnot. And um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty small human. So sometimes can be difficult just to find workwear that fits uh, tough to find lady stuff. Um, I'm also an extremely cold individual. And uh, so, <laughs> so I, I live in these things in the wintertime. And, um, you know, I, I don't honestly know the exact moment where I'm like, you know, I could maybe try and find something that fits a little bit better. But um, it'd be about three years ago now that I decided to just try and uh, get a couple patterns made for some ladies overalls and uh, see if I could design something that I like to wear and see if others would like to wear it as well. Mm -hmm. And so worked away at that was a, a definite learning curve because I don't know anything at all about the clothing industry. Um, but I found myself basically a general contractor for all things manufacturing who was able to put me in touch with a pattern maker, put me in touch with manufacturers. Um, and then over time I, I sourced materials and whatnot and eventually came up with what I think is a really great design of ladies overalls. And um, so I got some pairs made uh, almost two years ago now, the fall of 2021 and just started on social media. So it's been a very cool journey to learn the social media side of things you know, you start with having friends purchase and then it kind of expands from there. And now I'm on TikTok and uh, in a couple of different retail locations. And it's been really cool to see the progression of that business. And it uses an entirely different side of your brain. So I'm, I'm a pretty creative person, but I also like the science side. So it's, it's a nice balance between the agronomy and the workwear right now. That's really interesting because it's such a huge market too. And I know I've listened to people, women complain about clothing because everything's for men. It really is. Like if you look at sectors like hunting stuff, you look at workwear, like whether it be like high-vis, overalls, boots, everything else, like it's just not, it's men stuff and then women wear it. So it's kind of, it's exciting that you've kind of found this little niche and started started to go because I know some people that have uh, were your clothes and they love them. Yeah, no, and that's that's super cool to hear for sure. And it's, you know, I, I understand why there hasn't been um, as big of a push for women's workwear because it is just a smaller sector compared to men's, right? It costs a lot of money to come up with new designs in stock inventory. And so I can understand to a point, you know, why it hasn't been available until, until now, but I, I do agree with you. I certainly think that there is a market for it. Um, it's been fun for me. I'm, uh, I'm also a bit of a closet horse girl. Don't always tell people that the first time that I meet them. <laughs> but um, but we reach worldwide, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, <laughs> you can edit that out. Right? The secret, the secret thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, but I've I've had pretty pretty good uptake on that side as well. Um, just you know, a lot of folks like myself that go out and, and ride in the elements in the winter and want something a little bit warmer to wear, and so it's been kind of cool getting to combine that as well as the farming and the ag sector, and um, yeah, just uh, 
just cool to bring new designs out. Like this summer I came out with a lighter weight, um, like a very stretchy fabric um, for a summer overall, have a little bit of water resistance to them. And um, I've gotten such amazing feedback. Like so many people have told me these feel like Lululemon. I'm like, that's cool. You know what I mean? Like when you can design something that like people are very excited to buy that yeah. they haven't had access to in the past and uh, they can put something on that they feel confident wearing throughout the day. Like that is such a, a such a cool feeling. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. <laughs> so when you started like making the workwear for yourself, like was your first thought fashion or function? A little bit of both, a little yeah. bit of both. So I love bright colors, um, barrel racers. So we uh, <laughs> love the bright, bright colors, all the patterns. And, um, and you know, like a lot of women do too. So what I found, especially as I've gotten older and working, you know, I don't leave the farm a lot, you know, aside to go to the field, right? I'm in the field or I'm in a tractor cab or I'm around here. Um, I don't go a lot of places to get dressed up, right? And I've got nice clothes hanging in my closet that I literally never get to wear. A lot of other women are the same, right? They don't get off the farm very often. So it's nice for them to have something that they feel confident in to wear to the barn that comes in some fun colors and stuff too, eh? Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> I'm excited for you. Like it's, uh, it's great to see the entrepreneurial spirit kind of living on through the next uh, generation. I know us millennials kind of take a, take it on the chin or you don't want to work or whatever like that, but I find that we just, our work's a, a lot more different than what maybe some of the older generation can appreciate, so. I joke a lot, like, I'm a true millennial, and I joke about this a lot, like, I'm a fulfillment junkie, so, like, <laughs> I mean, and I, I think a lot of millennials are, we have to be doing something that we are passionate about, mm -hmm. but I think the really cool thing in this day and age is that we can do that with the era of technology, right? Like, look at you with this podcast, um, that's maybe not something that you could have started by yourself 20 years ago, right? Like you would have had to go it wasn't invented. a producer and get on <laughs> like a radio show, right? Like yep. you would have, you can start that up and provide value to a lot of people, which is fantastic. And so, um, you know, it's, it's tough for this generation, but at the same time, there's a lot of great opportunities. That's awesome. I think we'll, uh, we'll end it there, Michelle. I really appreciate, uh, you coming on the podcast today. It was really great learning experience uh from the agronomy and the feed crop side of things and then seeing your passion for your clothing company that's pretty exciting so if you want to learn more about uh, michelle you can check out uh prosperity egg out loud podcast and we talked before you've got a few episodes of that out and then uh turn and farm and ranch wear and uh your business prosperity egg you're at prosperityag.ca right uh yes i am yeah okay i'll i'll put all your stuff in the show notes and uh Anyways, I truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Excellent. Well, I, uh, I thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.